mask mandates, eating outside, eating inside. As local governments get better about deciding how that's going, businesses get better at planning for it in advance. The real problem in these situations isn't COVID, although COVID's bad. It's the inability to even know what to expect because business can can overcome hardship. That's something we, that's the history of humanity is that you figure out ways to get over hardship. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, together, we are bald. Oh, together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and, and bald. I'm glad you got that straight. Yes, we have to establish, this is full disclosure, you guys need to have uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, nor the, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. The you dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> It already has self-destructed because it's too old. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. I have another question from um, our most famous questioner, uh, John the Inquisitor. Um, the headline of the newspaper article that he sent in was the, an inflated sense of ability, the Lords of easy money. And it's a, uh, it appears to be a book review by uh, Joe Sternberg on Christopher Leonard's new book called The Lords of Easy Money. Okay. The question that we have is here, uh, I realize that this is the writer's opinion, but what's your assessment of the comment? Is the Fed out of touch? He's got a circled area that basically, I'm going to paraphrase it, says uh, that the Fed and most academic and mainstream economists believe that the Fed can move some levers deftly and increase empl employment or co control inflation. Um, it then goes on to say this means that there's a direct connection between the Fed and Main Street. Uh, and then it goes on to say that that's not true, that there's a complex web of the financial system made up of bankers, pension companies, pension savers, fund managers, private equity investors, day traders, and everybody else in the market, all with their own incentives. And then it goes on to say, the Fed understands startlingly little about how this financial system transmits its policies to Main Street. 
Christopher Leonard believes that the Fed and most mainstream economists economists don't know as much as they think they do about the financial system that transmits the policies out to the day-to-day life on Main Street, as if everybody lived on Main Street somehow. I don't know. Okay, he's right and he's wrong. There's a whole area in here that there's no way to know right now. There may be some way of knowing in the future when we're looking at a stock, I'll give you an example. It's, it's not exactly the Federal Reserve, but it's a good way of, of talking about things. My experience is that quite a lot of the selling in the market that takes place in the stock market doesn't have to do with the price in the market. I know this is weird. Most people think this has to do with you know, the auction market and whether it's a good price or a bad price and, and all of that. My experience is that maybe even the majority of the actual sales, not the majority of number of sales, but the number of dollars coming in and out of the market have nothing to do with where the market is right now. And I know that seems weird because when people talk about this, that's what they focus on. It has a lot more to do with when retirement starts or when that planned boat purchase or home purchase takes place and how you plan for it. Because the reality is that when you buy in the market, you may think it's a good price and that's why I'm buying it. But a lot of times people kind of put it in their 401k and then don't do anything to it. They just keep putting money in there and don't don't mess with it for a long period of time. And then when they do mess with it, it's because it's time for them to start taking money out. So what does the Federal Reserve changing an interest rate have to do with that? Zero. The Federal Reserve's policies on what short-term interest rates are being charged to its bank do not affect most people's decision on when they're retiring or when they're buying a house or when they're buying a boat they may begin to be more interested in one of those things if interest rates move. But that's an area that has, there's no easy control over that. There's no lever, magical lever on the desk of the the board of the Fed where they can hit a button and cause people to say, I'm going to retire early or later. They have controls that are very directly related to their job as a bank. The, the, what happens on Wall Street, they have a, a lot less influence on. They don't buy and sell stock. They don't. That's not what the Federal Reserve does. So this is a good, let's, let's kind of take a step back. I wanted to talk about the Federal Reserve anyway, and this question really drives right to it. The, the president has nominated a bunch of people to sit on the board, and he's nominated a new uh, regulator for the board. In order to understand what it is that we're even talking about, though, what is the Federal Reserve? What does it do? What, what is the purpose of this thing that people talk about? And it's truly boring if you ever watch them on C-SPAN. It's like to the extreme, even for economists, it's intended to be that way. Okay, what are they? They are a, an institution that was mandated by Congress to help prevent too much inflation and too much deflation to control the value of the currency. Now, after, um, 
uh, changes from the global financial crisis. They were given a second mandate, which is to help control employment, how to keep full employment. Well, that's a lot harder. And that goes directly to the point, Christopher Leonard's saying, how do you change an interest rate and cause people to get hired? You can't really do that. Um, you can, but it's only a tangential effect. Why is raising and lowering interest rate that important? The Federal Reserve's job is, number one, controlling the power of our money, making sure it doesn't get too weak or too strong. It needs to stay at a, at a very slowly changing environment. Now, we had this big spike in inflation recently. Is that a problem at the Fed? No, it has to do with we're in the middle of a pandemic, and they've actually done a fantastic job in many, many of the areas. We could be in the same boat as the rest of the world right now. We are the only major economy on the planet that has recovered to beyond what it was pre-pandemic. And a lot of that goes to the Federal Reserve. A lot of that goes to massive chaos in our political system, and nobody was really in charge of who stayed home and who wasn't after that first mandate. So our economy is doing really well. Back to the Federal Reserve. The big premise here is that Christopher Leonard says that the Federal Reserve doesn't know that they don't know about this stuff. And that's not true. So that's the part that I disagree with. There is a big blank area where we don't know how to influence the market in a, in a good way or a bad way, uh, in that how do you influence when somebody's buying their boat? Uh, that's true. In the middle of all of this, how can I say it's not true that they're not in touch? Well, there are a series of people coming up for nomination right now. They'll just go over the board kind of in general. Chairman Powell is there, and you probably heard his name. He was, he was put on the board by President Obama and put up to the top post on the board by President Trump. Isn't that weird? Think about that for a second. Uh, Leo Brainerd, who's up for the second number two position, um, She's been on the board since 2014, so another uh, Obama appointment. But what you'll notice is that Donald Trump and Barack Obama and Joe Biden are all talking about the same people. They're all nominating the same people. This is one of the greatest success stories that is unlauded in our time, is that we've got a board of really not political people determining how the banks should be regulated and how interest rates should be charged. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to be. There's not been over political politicization. Now, in the middle of that, the new uh, nominees, uh, a lot of the Republican senators are doing the same thing they do every time there's a, a nominee from a Democrat. And the same thing happens to the Democrats when there's a nominee by a Republican. They're the same people that got nominated by the other party not long before, but you still have this political battle to go on. So just like I said, just by the way, I'm going to wrench my arm out of socket and give myself a pat on the back. The Build Back Better plan, don't worry too much about it early on. We don't know what's going to pass or even if it's going to pass. It didn't pass. So there was a lot of negativity in the political press about all the bad things and how the end of the world was nigh and all of that. It just didn't happen. That political press is now focused on these new nominees. 
Um, specifically, there's there's one that I want two of them that I think are fantastic, amazing. One that is really really good. Um, Philip Jefferson, who's uh, uh, an academic economist and he's been the dean of faculty at Davidson College. It's a great school. Uh, he's been nominated. These are 14-year terms, just as a side note. These are not short things. They need to have some ability of not being influenced by politics around them. And the other person that was nominated that I think is really of note is Lisa Cook, who's an economics professor at Michigan State. Now, Michigan State has a fantastic economics department. They are some of the best out there, just I know it's a state university and people are like, well, but if you're an economist, Michigan State, people perk up about. So these two are phenomenal economists that are apolitical and I have been following their work in economics for years. They're both on board with the concept of intellectual property rights, physical property rights that you should get incentivized by actually accomplishing something, not free money for everyone. That is very, very core to their values. And I'm kind of hearing the opposite of that in the political world about who, what they stand for. And so obviously people haven't read their actual studies, their actual papers. And then Sarah Bloom Raskin is a um, former Fed governor and a lawyer. Uh, she's also been uh, uh, nominated to serve her term's going to be expiring in 2032 so it's not the full 14 year term and then in the middle of that we got two other board members uh that are still there from before both of these were trump appointees uh christopher waller and michelle bowman they're both amazing michelle bowman just to hit the point you know this this is all about this book that says they don't know what's going on and they don't have any ties with the community banks and so on Michelle Bowman is a former community bank executive and was the state bank commissioner for Kansas. Um, This is something that you'll find almost always on the board of the Federal Reserve is someone with experience with smaller banks, someone with experience at investment firms, and a lot of academics. So what that says is they study where we don't know stuff. That's how we get to know it. So they're, very, they're more aware of what we don't know than almost anybody else. And that was a really long-winded, you know, 12, 15-minute answer to say the Fed is aware that its tools are not designed to flip a switch and cause everybody to start hiring. They're absolutely aware of that. They're also aware that when they change interest rates by a quarter of a percent, the effect of that might be seen in four months. So it's like steering the Titanic, and they know this. A lot of the reason why I said this before, the, their meetings are so boring, is to purposefully be boring, to say things are fine, nobody's panicking here, in as much a monotone as possible, because panics are real, and if you panic over the money, it gets bad. So that's part of their job is to be really, really smart about money and to be as difficult to understand when describing it as possible so that people get bored by it and don't get scared by it. Um, So that's more power that the Federal Reserve is just the fact that it's boring has as much power as whether or not it's raising or lowering interest rates. It's just 
one of those weird things in the world that we live in. And it's only weird if you haven't thought about it through that lens before. We tend to think that we are somehow in this new era where technology has happened and we just are better than before. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. We've got to keep making uh, decisions with not enough information. That's true in business and the people that regulate business. So keep, keep in mind that nobody's perfect, and if we hold everybody to that perfect scale, it's not going to work. We had what appears to be 7% inflation for a quarter this year, year over year. Massive inflation. We're seeing that drop back down. Is that the Federal Reserve? Well, this is an area of study that I've done throughout my career is on pandemic epidemics. They just used to be called plagues, by the way. It's, we've got all these new terms for them, but they were just plagues. Um, natural disasters and war and how they affect the economy. And what we're seeing here, as I said in the first hour, this spike looks just like after a war that we won. Now, winning a war the only thing worse than winning a war is losing it. Things aren't good in your economy from a war. You may go to a war footing and your productivity may be up, but you're making a bunch of stuff that people aren't going to want to buy when the war is done. It's, it's not like we have tanks lined up in the traffic jams. Uh, we don't have B-52s as our uh, commercial passengers. Uh, th that's not what it's for. It's for war. And when you do you're done with that, what do you do to make a profit now? So we see massive unemployment, even when you win the war. You see massive unemployment at the end of the war because you're no longer doing those things. There's a great deal of stimulus that's already sitting in the economy because the government was the one that was paying for all that stuff. Now, having said all of that, um, looking at the Federal Reserve, they're in good shape. Looking at where we are in history, this isn't a Federal Reserve issue that we got this spike having it drop down so that we don't have inflation in a few years, that's all on the Federal Reserve. Having this spike, that, they didn't do anything to make that spike. They're reacting to the environment. If we have this sustained and going forward, it's not a shock that we've got COVID-19 anymore. It's just here. Now they have to revise what their day-to-day -day is. So this is an area where that, that book's absolutely right. There's so much we don't know, and it's staggering how much we don't know in areas that we didn't even know we didn't know. For the pandemic, for instance, we didn't know that a global outbreak of COVID-19 was going to cause um, a crash in the market, cause then an immediate recovery in the market, and uh, unemployment to go crazy bad and then come back to very close to full employment in this short a period while the crisis continues. So I'm kind of giving them a lot of credit for dealing with this as we're going. It isn't great in the rest of the world right now. I mean, it's not that I'm saying it's great here, but it's worse elsewhere. We're, we're in growth, so are a lot of other places, and goes to our next point. South Korea is raising interest rates right now. It's now back up to pre-pandemic level. A lot of other countries are raising interest rates. Turkey's lowering interest rates. They're getting double-digit inflation at this point. So 
on the subject of interest rate changes and what's the best way to do it, we are getting more information right now over the last two years on major economic centers around the world and what differing inflation rates mean for them. This is going to impact how the Federal Reserve acts in the future. We're just phenomenal amount of amazing data for really a bad time to be. <laughs> uh, things are going really great and at the same time really bad. This is not normal in the record-keeping stage of industrial Western socioeconomic platforms. Uh, so this data is going to influence Federal Reserve decisions into the future. And Fed uh, the South Koreans are raising interest rates. Their inflation um, is not being stopped by that. The Federal Reserve in the United States is not raising interest rates yet. They're saying a, a raise in March. It's fascinating because we're, we're going to get to see who's right. When is it right? And then how do we use that in the future? I, I don't want to spend too much more time on this question or, or on this subject because to most people, the Federal Reserve is about as boring as you can get intentionally. It is a fundamental piece i mean fundamental in the true meaning foundational it is a part of our economy that if it were missing the entire thing would fall apart and it's quietly doing its job really well joe biden's just nominated a bunch of people some of whom were already nominated by trump some the advisors to trump would say we would have recommended these people to him as well so that's from the a political aspect of what's going on, even though they've got to go through the Senate and be reviewed and just expect Republicans to be upset about it now, just like Democrats were upset about it during Trump's era, but also expect these people are likely to go through the confirmation process relatively easily because they're brilliant. They're amazing academics. Um, there's also a, a, a new person being nominated for... Um, the regulatory post at the Federal Reserve. So the other job that the Federal Reserve does is regulates other banks to make sure that the banks across the country are maintaining enough money on hand in case when you say, hey, I want my money out of the bank, they have it for you. There's, that's, that's all part of the framework that the Federal Reserve lays down to these banks. You have to have this percentage on hand. That's called the reserve requirement. And part of that is why the Federal Reserve has its name. So now I'm going to skip to some other subjects. I have been covering China quite a bit over the past several months. And one of the things that I have said repeatedly is that new manufacturing centers in China are just not happening. The, most of those were being made by uh, foreigners to China. And they've really, that's dried up. There is a new battery factory being made by CATL. Um, I just like to call it cattle, but it's the largest battery manufacturer in the world, uh, and it's a Chinese one. So the new manufacturing taking place in China is pure Chinese, and they're doing battery production because Tesla's there, and they're making their own um, electric cars. So they're likely to be using the batteries for purely domestic purposes rather than for export. Why is that important? Well, because the vast majority 
of Chinese infrastructure is built around export. And so there's some recognition in China that maybe that's not going to be happening anymore. The President Xi is tightening the ability to get anything out of the country. It's, he's getting them much more uh, centrally focused. So those are things to look at into the future. In the meantime, battery manufacturers are popping up all over the rest of the world. So that is a, a sea change from what we were seeing five years ago where battery manufacturers were going to China still. Uh, now it is not. Uh, there's some other issues there. Lithium mining is a big deal. And if you're making it near the battery manufacturing, that's better because transporting lithium is dangerous, dirty, icky. Um, so uh, that's some other areas. Our rare earth mining has blown up all over the world as well. So China's uh, monopoly on that is slowly going away, slowly now, but as a lot of the, these new centers come online, a lot more of it will move away from China. So this is fascinating to me to watch in this very, very, very short piece of history to reverse what we've seen 25 years moving toward is being reversed in just two or three years of manufacturing in China. It usually doesn't happen as fast as it is, and this might have some major negative effects on the Chinese economy. Chinese economy is not in good shape right now. They've got the zero COVID policies across the board, and that right now is hitting Hong Kong hard. So Hong Kong is a center of trade and commerce and the Chinese policy of just shut everything down is really eating into them. And that's it's not the only place it's happening. It's all over China. Um, there are different estimates on the total number, but something above 100 million pe people that are not able to leave their homes right now in China. That's a big deal. Now, what's happening in the United States economy? This is new quarter. This is another thing that I talk to undergrads uh, in econ, even grad students in econ about. When we look at GDP numbers, the first quarter of the year is typically lower than the rest of the year. And my trick question for them is, why is that? And I get all kinds of, well, it's after Christmas and all that. No, it's, it's winter. That is the answer. And we've already had a series of relatively severe winter storms in the Northeast. When we see that happen, we see a drop in growth. Specifically, uh, this year it's going to be harder on the restaurant market because they are, e even a small storm causes people not to go out to eat. Boston and New York are not letting people eat inside again. So outdoor eating is what's going on. You get a big snowstorm and you don't have restaurant eating. So know that this quarter is going to be weird as far as we're likely to have big growth in certain areas of the economy and back to big shrinkage in certain areas of the economy because it's winter. At some point, humans will get used to cold weather, but it is not here yet. It's probably going to be hundreds and hundreds of years before we're truly in a place where winter does not make our commerce slow down. It, it, it shouldn't surprise me about this anymore because I have this conversation enough times and I know the answer is never going to be about the weather when I'm asking people. But we have this sense that the weather doesn't influence our economy anymore. It's just kind of a universal feeling. Oh, no, it's just weather, right? 
Well, if you can't fly because of snow, or, he, or it takes longer to drive somewhere because of snow, that slows things down. That economy gets slowed down. And that's so common sense when it's laid out like that. And I know as an economist, I'm supposed to use really technical words and talk about it's just gets cold and icy. And that means people don't work as much. <laughs> I, they don't spend enough time teaching that in economics, that weather is a major influencer of the economy. Uh, pandemics are also a major influencer on the economy. I suspect our negative economic impact from COVID is going to continue to be lessened and lessened as people just finally decide on the thing that they're going to do. Mask mandates, eating outside, eating inside. As local governments get better about deciding how that's going, businesses get better at planning for it in advance. The real problem in these situations isn't COVID, although COVID's bad. It's the inability to even know what to expect because business can can overcome hardship. That's something we, that's the history of humanity is that you figure out ways to get over hardship. Not knowing the next step at the governmental level, are we going to get shut down? Are we going to stay open? Not knowing that stuff is the real drain on the economy. The other drain is a longer term drain. If we're losing people to COVID, we're losing their innovation, we're losing their productivity and so on. Uh, so that's a much longer term issue. Looking much shorter term, as governments get better at telling us what they're doing, at saying uh, this is what would cause us to shut down and we're going to do it in on Saturday, that makes it easier for businesses. It's still not great if you're in the restaurant business. This is a tough time to be in restaurants. Uh, but going back to the delivery method or the pickup method and having it available that way we already know how to do that again. So in Boston, we just had this uh, Izzy is expected to hit. They're naming the snow these days. Izzy, it's not even a great name. Uh, it's supposed to hit on Monday, which is a, it's a holiday. People were likely to go out and do lots of eating and such on a holiday. So what I'm already seeing in Boston and in New York is the immediate re-implementation of the pickup and the delivery options that were developed during the, the lockdown. So what does that say about our economy? It says that we're going to take a bit of a hit, but we actually may be in a better shape to take these winter storms than we were pre-pandemic and that the food is going to get delivered even well, people aren't going to the, to the restaurant. Because in a big snowstorm, they didn't go to the restaurant even if it was out inside. So anyway, there's so many things going on in the world right now. Looking at the incremental shifts that have taken place over the last several decades, going to these exponential shifts in the way we do business. I mean, five years ago, talking to a restaurant owner about whether or not they delivered, they're like, oh, or yeah, sure we do. Or now there's, there's gig jobs that do the delivery for you. There's restaurants that let you pick it up. We've changed and we're continuing to change. The supply chain that we brought back from China and continue to bring back from China, 
the way we're developing how we eat, the, the distance to the food suppliers for manufacturing of food. There's a great story on, uh, in here that somebody should publish on grape nuts, you know, post-cereal grape nuts. During the pandemic, it was hard to get grape nuts. There was a massive shortage, shortage of grape nuts all over the, all over the planet. Well, why? Well, because it was hard to get the grain to the plant. And so it was hard to get the cereal from the plant out. They resourced to local growers, massive amount of resourced back to local growers. Those local growers were shipping to people in other states who also were in these really un, not well-distributed supply chains. So they're shipping you know, hundreds of miles to someplace in another state that wanted to buy their wheat while 20 miles away, Post's grape nuts were not being able to be made because they were shipping the wheat from hundreds of miles away somewhere else. We're seeing that shift, and, and when we're looking at it from the hindsight, it's like, well, that was dumb. Why did Post decide to ship from over there? Well, because it was cheaper. And so they kept the price of the, of the cereal down. Well, now that they're buying more expensive grain, the price of the grain went up. The price of the cereal went up. Is that inflation or was it a shift in our supply chain and will the prices readjust again? And all of those answers are maybe. <laughs> yes, we will continue to readjust. And as long as we give incentives to innovate, as long as we pay people extra to get the thing that we want, they will find better ways of getting it to us. The market defines the direction that the market moves. When we buy more of something, more people want to sell it because they see it's being bought. So they say, how do I get into that market? How do I, this is the newest thing, I wanna sell that too. And if we're more focused on, on being able to work virtually, and we are, the market is providing that. We've had more innovation on virtual working from home, the promised stuff that's been over the last 30 years of, yeah, at some point this will be good enough. Well, that which is not good enough is still being used. <laughs> and a lot of the stuff that isn't good enough has gotten a lot better. And it's going to continue to get better. Uh, many, many of the major industries have gone just to that statement of you're going to work from home in essence, permanently, if you want to, we're not necessarily going to open back up. We kind of expected that to come during the pandemic for the last year or so, that with this back and forth. And the final part of this, and this is after talking to epidemiologists and virologists, is that just expect COVID to be a part of our lives for the rest of our lives. Even if we could get the vaccine out and it was somehow a magical vaccine that we could get to every person on the planet right away and it was effective against all of the mutations that exist right now, we still have to vaccinate all the cats and the dogs and the deers and the, and the deer and the horses because they all have it too and the pigs and, and so on. You just go down that list. It's going to be a thing that we get booster shots forever on. The booster shots will be less doubted, I think, in the future because they'll just become a fact of life like the flu shot. Then we'll just go, okay, what's this version? What's this version? And so on. All right, we're about out of time. 
If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give fiduciary investment advice at The Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can phone us as well, 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN on thepersonalwealthcoach.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can send us information through the contact form. And you've got uh, lots and lots of podcasts available out there. If you want to listen to the radio program as it was, you can go to our webpage. If you want to hear all the little bite-sized pieces uh, of the podcast, go to any podcast provider. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.